Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A note to listeners, the following podcast contains material that may not be appropriate for all audiences. Previously on Father Wants Us Dead. It wasn't as if he didn't have a conscience. If anything, his conscience was too great. He felt responsible for saving souls. This was a very controlled man who had very specific reasons and resentments. After he killed them all and left, I was always so scared he was going to come back and get me. Isn't that crazy? I always thought that. I think it'll provide some kind of forgiveness because I'm confessing how it really went because that may be kind of like maybe reconciliation, uh, a way to put it to rest. I'm Jessica Remo. And I'm Rebecca Everett. And we could not be more excited to be back for a bonus episode. Bonus episode. Who would have thought this podcast would be enough of a hit that we'd be back for more? When we set out to make Father Wants Us Dead, we didn't really know what to expect. We were seriously wondering, would anyone care about this 50-year-old crime? A crime that was solved. Sure, the story is so gripping, but would anyone really listen? And thankfully, we now know the answer is an unequivocal yes. Thanks to you. You've made us a top 10 podcast on Apple in the U.S. And shout out to our listeners in Canada, New Zealand, Argentina, South Africa. People around the world are listening to the John List story. And we are so humbled that we got our shot at telling it. Yeah, it has exceeded all our expectations. I think it's safe to say that. I had an old friend's little brother come up to me in a bar in Massachusetts and tell me how much he liked it. Shout out to Keith. Thanks, Keith. And it's been amazing to get these emails from locals who have been so into all the new details. It's so personal to them, and they want to gab with us about it like we're old friends. We heard from more people who knew the List kids or who lived in the next town and remember how terrified they were after the killings. Some told us they were so fascinated by it that they went to the trial. And you guys sent us great questions and made it clear there are a few plot points you just want more on. So that's why we're back in the studio today to answer those unanswered questions. And we also want to share some listener stories with you and let you in on a few more things that we found fascinating in our reporting, but ultimately had to leave on the cutting room floor. So of all the emails we've received, the question we got nearly every day is about the only member of the List family who wasn't killed in 1971. Brenda, Helen's daughter from her first marriage. Right. This is her daughter with her first husband, Marvin, the one who died in Korea when Brenda was only nine. After Helen and John got married, she lived in Michigan with them. She got pregnant at 16 and was sent to a home for unwed mothers and gave the baby up for adoption. 
We didn't get into her much in the podcast because for most of her adult life, she wasn't very involved with the rest of the List family. And we can't even describe her for you because we couldn't track down a picture. But we do know that less than two years after her pregnancy, she married that same boyfriend and they had five daughters together, though they eventually got divorced. I talked to one of her daughters, Karen Masonville. She didn't want to be recorded for the podcast, but she was kind enough to share a little about Brenda's life, which unfortunately ended at 51 when she died of cancer. One of the first things Karen told me was a little surprising. And that's that Brenda actually recalled List very fondly and talked about how he was always good to her when she was little. He was often more of a real parent to Brenda than Helen, something Karen blames on Helen's illness. Growing up in Michigan, he was a typical dad. Gentle, kind, never a sign of aggression. This just underlines how ordinary John List sometimes seemed, even to his own family. He's a complex guy. There's evil in him, but there's a part of him that wants to be a good dad. And let's not forget that as a young teenager, Brenda herself had to step up and help take care of her three half-siblings when John was working and Helen was sick in bed. We know the List family moved to Rochester and then Westfield, but Brenda stayed and raised her daughters in Michigan. Karen said they didn't get out to visit the family on the East Coast very much. She could only recall going twice as a little girl. One of the things she remembered was her grandmother sick in bed, but getting up to prepare them a meal when they arrived. Just a can of pork and beans, which stood out to her as a kid. John List was more of a host and would take them places when they visited, but she said he never smiled. He was quiet, very prim and proper, always in that suit and tie. Which is why it had to be so devastating for Brenda to find out that he murdered the whole family, the family she grew up with, and then just disappeared. That's what Karen said, that Brenda was in total shock, because it just didn't fit with the stepdad who raised her. You're dealing with the tragic loss of the rest of your family, and the fact that the killer who's on the run is the only father you ever really knew. And we've read in the archives that Brenda didn't go to the funeral, but instead put out a public statement in the press. It said, Daddy, you're all I have left. Will you please call me? I found that really haunting. And if I was her, Jess, I don't know if I'd want him to contact me. Because even if you love him, aren't you terrified of him now? It sounds to me like it could have just been a tactic to help police find List. Either way, we know he didn't call her. And there's no evidence she went to see him in jail or came to the trial. Based on what her daughter told me, Brenda chose to remember instead the kindness he showed her as a kid. And that kindness is really interesting after everything we've learned about List. When Brenda was 16 and in that home for unwed mothers, it was List and not Helen who drove two hours to visit her, according to his memoir. Right, he was actually forgiving when this happened to Brenda. But with his own kids in Westfield, it seems like he was a totally different kind of dad. He'd get worked up about the most minor stuff, like Patty being in drama club. I think it speaks more to how amped up he was in Westfield, how he felt that everything was unraveling with all the other financial and family pressures. 
So, Rebecca, another question we keep getting is about a different member of the List family, Helen List. And it's a very specific one. People were curious about her syphilis diagnosis and why she suffered so much from the disease. It's a disease that's curable, but sadly, she was never cured. Some also wondered whether she could have passed it on to John List, and if so, whether it could have affected his brain and been part of the reason he killed. Yeah, and there's a lot to unpack here and some qualifiers. So let's start with what we know about back when Helen first caught the disease from Marvin. Police records describe her being treated at Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. in 1948. And even though penicillin was an effective treatment at the time, the records show doctors used a method that now sounds kind of wild. It involves giving the patient malaria so that the resulting fever will kill off the syphilis. To get more context on this, we talked to Dr. David Sinimo. He's an infectious disease expert at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and he knows more than you ever wanted to know about syphilis. The malaria thing sounds weird to people nowadays, but if you think about it, I mean, this is, this is the era where they were using mercury initially, and then they realized that mercury was so toxic that they started using arsenic compounds. So in the scheme of the things that were being tried, giving somebody fever with malaria doesn't or didn't sound that outlandish. Uh, but there were never really good data saying that it worked. He was a little surprised that they were still using this method. Treating it early and treating it right is crucial with syphilis. He said it's the key to preventing the serious effects that Helen encountered later in life. But by the time she was being treated in the hospital, the records said it was already affecting her intellectual functioning. She had something called syphilitic meningoencephalitis. No idea if I've said that right. But it's essentially inflammation of the brain. So it may have been already too late to really reverse the effects. The next question people had was whether John List might have had syphilis too. And while police records indicate he was never tested, Helen most likely wouldn't have been contagious when they met. It was about three years after she was treated. You know, as far as passing on syphilis, you usually pass it on when you yourself have been first infected. And um, for, for purposes of round numbers, we would say up to a year. So up to a year out from your initial infection or a subsequent reinfection, you could be considered um, contagious. But after that, I, I generally advise people not to worry about it. But in Helen's case, because she was never cured, it became dormant and later turned into what's called tertiary syphilis, which can affect the brain. We also know that List was examined by numerous doctors and psychologists over the years, and none of them suggested any sign of brain atrophy. In fact, if we look at Dr. Stephen Simring's report from his interview of List in 1990, he seemed like the opposite of brain damaged. Simring said he had an IQ of 137, which he called a very superior level of intellectual functioning. I think it's also worth mentioning that in terms of the terrible symptoms Helen suffered from later in life, some doctors suggested that they may not have been only from syphilis. Yeah, Dr. Simring talked about this in his report after reviewing Helen's medical records. He said there may have been a psychiatric component 
plus the issue of her using large amounts of prescription drugs and alcohol. John List actually told his sister-in-law that the drugs Helen was on a few years before her death cost him up to $100 a week. It's kind of a chicken or egg thing, right? It's impossible now to tell which symptoms were due to her illness and which were an effect of her medicating to deal with them. And really, it just makes the whole thing feel even sadder. There are so many layers of tragedy to this story. She was really sick and troubled and clearly had a husband who had no ability to deal with that. Also, I can't help but wonder if Helen had been treated, if she had all her faculties, would she have been able to get away from List before he killed them all? Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So as with any giant reporting project, we had to leave so many things on the cutting room floor. Good things. Which makes us so happy to have this bonus episode where we can share a few pieces that we really wanted to get into the podcast. Like this story that I think is really important about one more group of people affected by this tragedy. The parish of Redeemer Lutheran, where the List family worshipped and John List taught Sunday school. Right, because John List made his religion such a focal point of what he did. And by addressing his letter to Pastor Raywinkle, he ensured that Redeemer Lutheran would always be dragged into his story for years. We actually stopped by the church when we were in Westfield, and we had barely gotten through the door. And as soon as the name John List left my mouth, yeah, they said no one would talk to us about that. Still, we had to do our due diligence. So I left a voicemail for the current pastor, Gary Tim, never expecting he would call me back. And to my surprise, after he had some time to think about what he wanted to say, he called. I confess that I wasn't really excited to call about it, just because it's something that's in our history, but it's amazing how it keeps coming up. Like, for instance, there was a guy from the fire station who was doing an inspection of the building, and upon letting him in to do the inspection, he's like, hey, this is the congregation with John List, right? And I looked at him, and I was like... <laughs> it just keeps what? coming up. I, yeah, yeah I'm I was sure. like, where is that coming from? And here he grew up in the house behind the lists. The fact that it keeps coming up really does speak to the nature of stories like this, how they just keep growing in size, becoming these monstrous tales and attaching themselves to people and groups of people who had nothing to do with them. Like Pastor Tim's only connection to List is the church. He's from Iowa. He never even heard of John List before he moved here. And now he's part of it. It must be difficult to have this be a part of the legacy of the congregation there. And I'm sure that it's painful when it comes up. It is. I was thinking about this. It's not just like you 
lost a loved one and then anniversary of their death or their funeral comes back. This is an entire family that was taken from this congregation. And it wasn't just that they were taken. I mean, it was taken in one of the most horrific ways possible. So when it comes up, it's that wound that just never really goes away. Now, it doesn't affect the entire congregation, but those who knew the list, for them, it hit the hardest. They genuinely mourn them being gone. Tim and I also chatted about something else, another unanswered question we've been trying to answer. It's whether List, who never seemed to take responsibility for what he'd done, ever really made his peace with God. And surprisingly, Tim had an answer. Because he had met one of a series of pastors who had ministered to List when he was in prison. And the pastor said, yeah, I was the guy who picked up the ball after him and continued ministering to John List. And about a year before he passed away, he confessed his sin, all that he had done, how wrong it was, his remorse in his heart, and just how sad he was of what had happened. And the pastor was able to give him God's forgiving grace and, and even shared a Holy Communion with him. I asked him if he truly believed this. And he does. And I know that there will be people who will be like, yeah, right, take Mm -hmm. that with a grain of salt, stuff like that. But I genuinely believe this pastor, and I'm not going to share his name because I know he's not interested in attention or publicity, or he doesn't want anybody to know, but he felt it was important that I know that John List had repented. He did also say it probably isn't a coincidence that it took List until the end of his life to repent. That's when the rubber really hits the road for all of us, is when we're looking at death and we start asking, what's next? So there was another thing we learned about John List that we found fascinating, but we couldn't squeeze it into the podcast earlier. It's about how List actually was super into true crime. That's right, true crime fans. You have more in common with John List than you thought. And back in List's day, true crime came in the form of books. And List apparently loved books about crime and murder mysteries. His brother-in-law, Gene Seifert, testified that List showed him that book collection and was basically obsessed with unsolved mysteries. Seifert said this thing to investigators that kind of blew my mind. I'm going to quote him here. John made a comment to me at that time that a lot of these books related to almost perfect crimes, and it would be something to commit a perfect crime. That really is something, because Liss seems like the most proper nerdy guy who never puts a toe out of line, and he just casually mentions how committing the perfect crime would be so neat. And you have to think that that helped him get away with it for so long. He had studied all these crimes and all the ways people did and didn't get caught. So when he decided to kill his family and get away clean, he could. It makes me think of what Gene's son Tim Seifert said. That List really thought he was so smart, he'd never get caught. Because we know List was smart and analytical. He loved these war strategy games like Risk. He even wrote in his memoir that when he lived in Denver, he worked on a method to win at roulette that got him kicked out of a casino. He really just wants to outwit the rest of us. Exactly. And he certainly was able to get away with it for a long, long time. 
Now, Jess, let's get to this last thing that we cut from the podcast, but we both hated to lose. It's this common thread of gallows humor that has been a recurring theme in our interviews. Even though nothing could be more serious, these little stories just kept coming up. The first one has to do with authorities in Union County who needed to let off some steam. And that came in the form of a prank, one that took place during the interminable span of time when authorities were trying to catch List, but he had disappeared so completely. They would send each other postcards from wherever they were on vacation and sign them John List. Here's Barney Tracy telling us the story of one of those postcards that got sent to James Moran, the police chief who was so obsessed with catching List he carried the wanted poster in his pocket. This one came from then-prosecutor John Stamler. And him and the chief were good friends. And he would go on vacation. Like, he went to Ireland one time. And Chief Moran was this old Irish guy. You know, he loved Ireland. He gets a postcard from County Mail, and it says, it's finally great to have a vacation without the kids. You know, like, things, like, are kind of crude, but kind of funny. Well, okay, but, I mean, we know that cops, like a lot of us, sometimes use humor as a way to deal with things. And there was another bit of dark humor from Brian Devlin, who grew up next to the lists on Hillside Avenue. He said it was a kind of common goof to do something similar in his office for years. I'd be at work and somebody would leave a message with our department and said, just tell Brian that it's John List and I'm pissed. And, you know, <laughs> oh, God, I know that's, I know who that is. <laughs> and I actually saw something myself several years ago. Someone made a John List Facebook account and then kept commenting and posting on Westfield topics as John List. I tried to figure out who was behind it and messaged him, but he didn't reply. Some people thought it was hilarious and loved being in on the joke, but others felt like it was in poor taste. I guess maybe it can be both. Like, it's not that List is necessarily a good punchline. But it's a shared reference for the whole community. Yeah, there's no getting away from it. This is always going to be the place where people talk about John List. For the final part of this bonus episode, we want to take a minute to talk about those of you who emailed us, particularly the people who lived in the area at the time of the killings. We interviewed so many Westfielders, but obviously we couldn't talk to everyone. From these emails, it was clear that the list murders are still so fresh for so many of you. And you remember vividly the days and weeks after the bodies were discovered. Some of you told us that listening to Father Wants Us Dead has been really cathartic. One person who reached out, Mark Lachlan, was 14 at the time of the murders. His family lived a stone's throw from Breeze Knoll on Hillside Avenue, so he knew the lists a little, but not well. And one of those memories around the list killings that stayed with him all these years was something he saw about a month before, when his family was driving home after a weekend trip. John List and Little John were planting a tree in the front yard. If you're looking at the house, there was a walk with them down. It's right to the right. And my dad pulled over. My dad was a very friendly guy. 
you know, chatted, you know, asking about the tree and hello and that kind of thing. And my recollection is Mr. List, because he's never John List, he's always Mr. List to me. He was friendly. And so it was a brief conversation, but it just stuck in my mind because it turned out to be a, you know, a month or so before he murdered his family. So it's sort of odd. After the bodies were discovered, Mark couldn't help but wonder why List would go to the expense and trouble to plant this big tree with his kid, knowing what was coming. Maybe he was trying to emphasize total normalcy before he did what he was planning on doing. Or maybe he was struggling with it. I don't know. It was a beautiful father-son moment. They were planting this tree. So I see this a little differently. Because I think back to what Chris Day said about how right before the murders, John List was nicer. He didn't care when Patty came home late. And I honestly think that he was trying to give his kids a pleasant last few weeks. So maybe planting this tree with John Jr. was just a nice thing he wanted his son to experience. That would also explain why he let Patty have this Halloween party friends keep telling us about. It seems like he would never let her host something like that. And then suddenly, he's granting her wish. Like, a last wish. It's hard to wrap your mind around that duplicity of caring and coldness you'd have to have to do that. Absolutely. And we heard from people who listen to the podcast that they've never been able to wrap their heads around what John List did. And if you're a kid when you learn about it and you're close to it, that does something to you. And this final story we're going to hear from Mark, it's just such a vivid picture of what happens when there's a mass murder in your neighborhood. How it gets in your head and shatters your sense of safety. It was several weeks after the discovery at Breeze Knoll. All the parents in the neighborhood were at the annual New Year's Eve party down the street, and the kids all came to the Lachlan's. Everyone came over to our house because we had a big basement and we were playing ping pong. And we we're down there, and my brother Bill goes off and, and he comes in all white, wide eyes. He just he swore he heard someone come into the house. And so this basement is filled with teenage boys, all freaking each other out, thinking they hear someone upstairs and it might be John List. So they actually call the police, and Mark said probably 10 cruisers show up. The cops are searching the house, all on edge, but of course, John List is not hiding in this house. It's just a bunch of kids with wild imaginations who can't shake this fear of the boogeyman from next door. If you step back, this was such a seminal event for anyone, and I'm sure this is what you're discovering when talking to people, anyone that had any sort of attachment to the area. The List murders, it's a little bit like Kennedy assassination or the Challenger blowing up. It just rings into your memory, and there are pieces that just stick there. And the New Year's Eve event was one of those. In hindsight, we all laugh about it because we were pretty silly. But at the time, we were convinced. I'm not sure we thought it was Mr. Lisp, but we were convinced that it was somebody. And, you know, back of our minds, we're probably all thinking it was Mr. Lisp. And for what it's worth, I talked to his brother, Bill, who said he was totally convinced it was Mr. Lisp. Yeah, because this was what was on everyone's minds back then, especially in that neighborhood. But also, around the county, people are just generally freaked out. 
And it's all anyone is talking about. And as we heard from lots of you, people are talking about it again. One listener who reached out to us was Chris Gatins. The subject of his email was, all I can say is wow. He said he and his siblings grew up in Fanwood, about a mile and a half from the List House, and it had such a profound impact on them that they still talk about it. So he was psyched that I wanted to talk to him for our bonus episode. When I called them after I got your email, they said, no, no. Because <laughs> my family is very into it, some of them. This is something that has stayed with us for you know, 50 years. He said it really changed everything for kids his age. And you also mentioned that after this happened, uh, you and your siblings weren't allowed out after dark. Oh, no, no, no. And back in those days, we had free reign. We could, you know, stay out till the lights are on. And it was scary because we knew a guy in our, not neighborhood, but close by, murdered some people, you know? But of course, like some teenagers will do, they leaned into the scary. Instead of shying away from the scene of the crime, they went there at night. Well, we wanted to see it. We wanted to see where was this murder house. And as soon as we drive up, there were cops there with the flashlights in our faces. Get out, get out. This is not a place. Because it was like a, a freak show. Everybody in the world was driving past this house after the murders happened. Because there was a fear, you know, there was fear of everything back then. A fear of everything back then. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, and he talked about this idea, how in 1971 in Union County, there was just this sense that scary, sinister stuff was starting to happen. Right, and John List and what he did really contributed to that. Maybe the Manson killings in California seem far away, but then you open the paper and see what this Sunday school teacher in Westfield did to his own family. And that's where we're going to leave you all until maybe our next bonus episode. I hope we answered your questions and we want to thank you all for digging the podcast. It's been kind of overwhelming. And you can help more people find Father Wants Us Dead by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. We so appreciate it. Father Wants Us Dead is a production of NJ Advance Media. It's reported, written, and produced by us, Jessica Remo and Rebecca Everett. Christopher Kelly is our executive producer and director. Alyssa Pasagio and Kevin Whitmer are also executive producers. Father Wants Us Dead was recorded at Sound on Sound Studios in Montclair, New Jersey. Our sound designer, mixer, and editor is Jacob Stone. Jacob and Alex Ritchie composed the music. And Alex also helped mix the podcast. James Shapiro is our associate audio engineer with help from Natalie Patterson. Additional audio was provided by Adam Kolick and Andre Malock. Our website was designed by Allah Salim. Special thanks to all our sources who agreed to talk to us, even though we know it wasn't easy. Visit fatherwantsusdead.com for more about the story, including crime scene photos and other extras we couldn't fit into the show. You can reach us at inbox at fatherwantsusdead.com. <laughs>